We're in Romans chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 5, and we get to pick up on this, really an introduction that Paul makes. These are some, verse 1 through 5 is uh, Paul's introduction of his own heart to the difficulties of the message that he's about to proclaim in verses 9 through 11. And these are rich, rich texts with significant theological doctrines brought out that are challenging to us. In fact, it was really challenging. I was uh, after the missions conference on Sunday and driving back with Matthias Bildane. His little five-year-old daughter, Betsy, was in the car. And they have been catechizing Betsy, giving her doctrine. And she was sitting there pondering and thinking. And she said, Daddy, I have a question for Pastor Mark. And, uh, and she's speaking in Spanish, so he has to translate it. She said, if God is sovereign, and you know it's trouble if it starts with that question right there, if God is sovereign. If God is sovereign and he's all-powerful and he loves everyone, and you can just see where this building up, this case building up, then how come he doesn't save everyone? A little five-year-old with the mind thinking through the theological implications comes in wrestling with these grand doctrines, saying, how do we understand them? And I said to her, Betsy, that's why you need to be at Saving Grace Bible Church in our study in Romans 9 through 11. Because Romans 9 through 11 is an answer to this very question right here. What is God doing? What is he accomplishing? And what about Israel, which was his people who rejected him? What is he doing among his people? How come there are people that reject God? How come there are people who don't believe? How come God hasn't saved everybody? These grand, marvelous, profound doctrines are the very doctrines that Paul unfolds in these three chapters. And these are difficult doctrines to understand. And difficult for us to wrap our minds around, particularly when you look at the nation of Israel. Because you have Israel, who were the people of God, who had called out to God in faith, who who had rejected their Messiah. The question is, well, what's happening with them? Has God abandoned them? Has he thwarted Has the purposes of God been thwarted or he changed his mind about them or he no longer loves them, he loves someone else? These are the profound questions that Paul begins to draw out here. And it comes naturally in Paul's flow of thought here in Romans. Because if the gospel comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, as chapter 1 and verse 16 says, and the gospel comes to redeem and to save, And if the gospel comes and God is saving the Jew and the Gentile and he's drawing them to himself and the covenant people of God, the physical nation rejected, does this mean that God can change his plan? That he can have a new people, he can decide to finish his covenants and end them and start a new covenant with somebody else or maybe God just replaced the group. He kept his promises, he just replaced who gets the promises. Can he do that? These are the questions in the hearts and minds of the people 
Because in that would mean if God can change his mind, if God can change his promises, if he can move that promise to a different group, if he can replace them, then could he do it to us? Would he do it to us? Would he change the gospel on us that we started believing and we were his people and then by our own rebellion and unbelief he rejected us and he just went to somebody else? These are the profoundly rich questions that Paul brings out in these chapters. And I know as we come to these chapters, these are challenging to us to think through these doctrines. How do I reconcile sovereignty and human responsibility? How do I reconcile these grand themes? What are we to do when we come to these texts? And again, even out of the lips of a five-year-old who is wrestling, how can it be that these truths be that God is sovereign and can control, and yet not all are rescued and saved? And Paul takes us right into these mysteries. And when we head into these mysteries and we begin to wrestle with these particular doctrines and we see these truths that demonstrates these things, demonstrates the greatness of God and his glory, and it demonstrates our unworthiness. We're saved by faith. We're saved by his grace. We are undeserving. We didn't earn it. He rescued us by his marvelous grace. And I know that kind of chapters like this are uneasy chapters for us and uneasy doctrines and even uneasy thoughts at times. And they're kind of irritating at times. And I know typically what happens when uh, you know, ministries come to difficult passages, we're kind of tempted to, to just ignore those passages, just to act like it's not there, you know, look past it and move on. It says some have come to Romans, skipped chapters 9, 10 through 11 after they finished 8 and went right to 12. It just moved on really rapidly. Or it would be very easy to take such a high view, an overview, to hover way above it and never really look at the particular details so that no tensions came out. Or we might even be just tempted to re-explain it away so we can flatten out all the difficulties. I don't intend to flatten out the difficulties. I intend to expose the difficulties. I don't intend to run from the hard passages and statements made through these passages. I intend to make us look carefully at them because there is a purpose that Paul has as he is writing to the Romans. And there is a glorious truth that he brings out that is for our benefit. And I say this, just as why as we wrestle through these chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we look carefully at the particular details, the question would be, well, what's the benefit is this? We're going to have a greater confidence in the gospel of God by the time we're done. A greater confidence in a gospel that is received by grace through faith. How do we know that? Well, the answer is this. Just simply look at God's work among Israel. He saves Israel the same way he saved us. By faith. By grace through faith faith. How do we know that? Well, you'll see that by the time we finish this series through these chapters. And I know this, that as I was thinking about this, we're heading into these marvelous doctrines and they're challenging for us to think through. I know we have people coming to the church and this is your first time, and even the first time that we are coming to a difficult section and, and race, facing these difficulties for kind of the first time, and uh, 
in that, you're feeling a, a little uncomfortable, saying, well, come they're pressing in on these things? I, I've never felt this way in a church before, and every time I come here, it's just right in the middle of these difficult doctrines. Uh, and um, I want you to understand, there are certain convictions that lead us as we are coming to the Scriptures. We do believe that the Bible is God's inspired word, that every word comes from God, that he, every word spoken is inspired by God. The holy men moved by God communicated his very word. And as such, as his inspired word, all of it, every verse, every chapter, every section is, in, is profitable for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it's all for our good. So we don't avoid the passages because it didn't line up with us or it didn't fit. We run into them to say, all right, God, what is it that you are going to do to shape us? And because of those fundamental convictions, it leads us to some practices. So that when we come to this text of Scripture, our intention of coming to the Scripture is to say, all right, what did the author intend to communicate? What did the author want us to know? And we ask another question as we come to the text. What would the audience, if they received that message, what would the audience have walked away understanding? Because whatever it is the author intended, the audience would have understood whatever that was, that was inspired by God and moved. And when we find that, that message, that intention, we have found the meaning of the Scripture. The God-intended meaning. And when that meaning, there's only one meaning. There isn't multiple meanings. You don't get your own meaning and I get my own meaning and we can all just go around and share our own meanings. No, there is one intended meaning from God given through the inspired human author, communicated the very will of God. And when we find that meaning, we then find the truth of God and we look at it and see its implications, its applications, its inferences for our life and our doctrine. And when we find that, then it shapes our living and our practice and our belief. That's how we operate every Sunday. And it's that very thing that then leads us into handling this text here. Not trying to read ourselves into it. Not trying to place ourselves there. We're trying to get out of the way and let the author speak and understand the author's message. And understanding that, we can then understand what God is communicating. So that my job is to give you the details. And it's your job to look at those details. Hold me accountable to make sure that I got them all out there. And then for all of us to believe God's message. And I say all of that because I know this is challenging for all of us as we come to these themes. But I believe that the work is a good work for us to get in. So now, what is Paul doing here? We're here in chapter 9, as I said, verses 1 through 5. And this section comes as Paul just completed this marvelous discussion about God's work and saving and securing his people. I mean, he said it multiple times back in chapter 8. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And God works all things together. And God is protecting us and sealing us. And even when we're weak and even when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf. We have this marvelous work of God who's securing, preserving, and protecting us so that we have, as chapter 8 and verse 1 says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And we are filled by the Spirit of God who's leading us. And we're not under obligation to the flesh. We're under obligation to the Spirit. And we are adopted as sons of God. And we are heirs of the promise. And we're anticipating that time in which we'll be able to cry out to God, Abba, Father. We have this security of salvation because God is preserving and protecting us. Marvelous truth. Then you come to chapter 9, and it obviously moves to the next question. But we weren't the first people. What about Israel? What about the people of God? What about Israel? What has happened to them? And Paul turns the corner here and pays attention to this particular group. What's happening to Israel? Because they have rejected. They rejected their Messiah. They crucified him. They gave false charges about him. They rested him in the middle of the night. They falsely tried him in the middle of the night against their own laws. They turned him over to the Roman authorities so the Roman authorities would handle him. They then pressured those Roman, same Roman authorities to crucify Christ. They did all of this in rejection of their Messiah. So then Paul comes and he turns his attention to that very group here in verses 9 through 5 and begins to instruct them. And he says there, again, as he is instructing them, he shares the burden in his own heart. And so what we saw the last time, that the preacher here turns his attention and demonstrates the difficulties of delivering this message. In verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I'm burdened over those I have to minister to. I have to deliver this difficult message, but I am going to do it. Turns his attention to minister to this group. And he does it out of great grief, great sorrow, great disappointment. But that great grief and sorrow and disappointment doesn't cause him to change the message. He doesn't say, okay, then I have a right to change the message because I'm grieved. No, he continues to deliver the message. Now we saw, and this will be our attention this morning, the people. Who's the audience that Paul was writing to? The audience is described from verse 3 through verse 5, the audience. Paul says, and we'll just read it. Paul says, I, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. This is the audience that Paul is addressing, the people he is coming to minister to, that he is addressing in this marvelous text. He is speaking, and it's obvious he is speaking, to the physical people of Israel, the physical nation. It's very obvious, though, throughout history, this has been confused in the church. It is clear, as we will see in this text, he's speaking to and about the physical nation of those who've been unbelieving and had rejected their Messiah. These are the ones he is grieved over. But historically, the church has moved away from this idea, and for various reasons historically. 
Historically, the church has moved away from interpreting this as being referenced to the physical nation of Israel, and they've gone to a spiritual Israel. And for different reasons, as I said, historically. One, it's just because of the growth of the church. In the early church, if you looked at the church in the early church, if the message came from Christ, who was a Jew, to his 12 disciples or Jews at the day of Pentecost, the Jews were there who received the Messiah, and then those Jews went out and began to spread the gospel, and then through this apostle Paul, the gospel starts spreading through the whole world. Before you know it, just 60 short years from the death of Christ, you see the Gentiles predominantly ruling in the church taking over everywhere. Conversion around the world is happening. While the Jews in Jerusalem are suffering, the rest of the world is prospering with Gentile converts. So some of the temptation is to believe, well, then the Gentile must have replaced Israel because look at all these converted converts among the Jews, among the Gentiles. Then in history, in about A.D. 70, you have a significant event with Rome coming in and destroying the temple. And then in AD 35, Rome comes again and, and kills over 500,000 Jews. You have the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of Israel, the destruction of their temple, even the slaughter of the people, and the idea must be that God is wiping them out physically altogether. And then finally, hermeneutically, as the church moved away from a literal interpretation to more of an allegorical interpretation, they have spiritualized the text and they spiritualized the terms. So that in church history, we moved away from recognizing the physical people of God to now the spiritual people. Church has replaced Israel, is the comments made. And that is a question for us that is crucial to the interpretation of these three chapters. Is Paul teaching here that the Israel is the spiritual Israel? The new Israel of God, the Israel that has replaced the physical nation, is that what he's talking about here? And as I have said a couple weeks ago, that is known as replacement theology, or to give the you know, bigger theological term, the term is supersessionism. Has the church replaced Israel? That's the question at hand as we come to this particular text, and I want to demonstrate to you that God is, and Paul here is directly, is talking about the physical nation. That he's not talking about a replacement of Israel. He's not talking about a new Israel, the church, the convert that comes in. Paul is specifically concerned about here the physical people of God who have not repented, and his desire is for those people to repent and turn to God. Now, just to show you, there's a scale. Just so you understand, there is a kind of a moving line here in regards to what people believe. The full supersessionist says this. The church replaces Israel entirely. The, the convert, everyone who believes, is replacing Israel so that all the, all the promises made to Israel are now for the church. In the middle is what we call those who would say that Israel will, God still has a future plan for Israel, but that future plan is salvation. That he's going to save Jews, but those, when he saves them, he's going to save them and bring them part of the church. And then full where we're at, 
full futurism is we believe that Israel not only will be saved, but also restored. There will be a salvation of Israel and a restoration of Israel. The people of God, God is going to restore his work and save his people. That's the spectrum. Now the question is, what is this text teaching us as we work our way through it? That's where I want us to begin to see where Paul is taking his, and really, this is all going to culminate at the end of chapter 11. Let me just show you, turn over to chapter 11. Where's all of this heading to? Why is this so important? Because of what Paul says here in chapter 11, starting in verse 11. And the point is this, if we get the beginning wrong, we're not even going to understand the end. What's the end? Well, just notice from chapter 11, starting at verse 11, we'll make some observations from verses 11 through 26. That's what he says. I say then, they did not stumble, so as to fall did they. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? What is he saying here? saying Israel has rejected, and the reason why they had rejected is so that the gospel would go out to the Gentile nations. And when it goes out to the Gentile nations, it benefits the riches of the world. But I love that phrase, how much more will their fulfillment be? Verse 13, but I'm speaking to you, who are Gentiles. And as much then, I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If, someone, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So look, I, I go out, I preach to the Gentiles, I minister the gospel to the Gentiles so that the Jew would be provoked and they would turn and they would believe. 15, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. He's saying, look, you need to understand your relationship to Israel. If you're grafted in now, you don't become arrogant to those old branches that were cut off. Certainly don't become uh, arrogant as if because you were grafted in, you're now the tree because you must not forget about the root which supplies all its growth to you. Verse 19, you will say, then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. He goes on and demonstrates God's present work with the Gentiles and how it relates to Israel. But it comes down to this question. Highlight in verse 25 and 26. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, notice, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And so all Israel will be saved, just as, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. This is where Paul is leading the argument up to, is to describe his present working, what is taking place, what God's purposes are in rescuing Gentiles, how long that time is going to last until the fullness of time of the Gentiles comes, and then his plan of salvation and restoration of Israel. Now, this is where it's heading. Now we have to turn back to chapter 9 and see how the whole argument begins. God, is God speaking of a, a kind of spiritual program? That he has a, a spiritual people, a people that has replaced physical Israel with a spiritual people? Is that what he's talking about here? Or is he talking about a particular people, a physical people, the physical nation of Israel, that, that Israel as a nation, the unbelieving Israel right now are going to be provoked to jealousy. They're going to turn. They're going to see their Messiah. They're going to believe. They're going to be saved and they're going to be restored and God's going to fulfill His covenant promises through them. What is God saying in this text? As I said, again, along the ways, people landed at different parts. For us, our job is to say, all right, what does the text say? Where does the text take us? And what I begin to demonstrate here is just notice how plainly Paul speaks about who he's identifying. Because the details are obvious when we work our way through this text. In fact, Paul gives 10 descriptions of the people that he is talking about in this text. Let's just start in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. This is the burden that Paul has as he's ministering to this group. He is willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of someone else. Somebody who's in a state of loss. Somebody who's in the state of needing to be rescued. It's this group that he's saying, I am willing, if it was possible for me to give up of my own life, I would give up my own life, be separated from God, that they might be rescued. Whoever this group is that he is talking about is a group that is lost. They are separated from God. They are under God's judgment. Whatever group that he is talking about here, he is so grieved over their loss that he is, as he says in verse 2, with great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. He is overwhelmed. And he would would gladly give himself up. The idea being that if it was possible, you know, if... uh, your child was arrested or something for a serious crime. You as a parent would rush in. Send me to jail, not them. Let me replace them. That's the idea Paul is saying here. I, this group, whoever his audience is, is a group that is under judgment, under, under uh, the wrath of God, or facing severe judgment, and Paul wishes he could give himself for that group. Who are they? Verse 3. I wish to be separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. He calls them my brethren. Who are the brethren? Who are the brethren that he is sorrowful for, that he is grieved over, that he has a a broken heart for? Because the word brethren is a very broad term. We use it all the time. 
We go to the church to be with the brethren. We call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. We are sons of God. We are adopted. We, we can use the term brethren in the church. It's Paul saying here then he has a heart for the brethren, the church. I mean, after all, Paul calls the other members in the church brethren. He calls them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he calls Paulus a brother. And Paulus, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12, he says this, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. That whom he is speaking about here, fellow Christians, since this term brother can also refer to fellow Christians, is that the idea? Well, look at the rest of the context. Because as I said, from the rest of the context, then he gives t- ten descriptions of the brethren he is talking about. And all ten of these descriptions are descriptions of the physical nation of Israel. What are they? They are my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites to whom belong the adoptions, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, who are the fathers and from whom the Christ has come according to the flesh. Ten descriptions of these brethren. They are physical Israel. Emphatically. These are the brethren he is concerned about. Let me give you all ten of these as he lays them out. And as he lays it out in context, it is very obvious as he's talking about his grief over the, the present physical nation that is in apostasy. They're in rejection. Notice the qualifiers. My kinsmen, he says. This is the brethren, my kinsmen. The term kinsmen relates to a physical relationship, a physical relative it speaks of some kind of physical connection and relationship to somebody. They could be our kinsmen relating to a physical nation, a relationship of a, a, a person who's part of a nation. You grew up in another country, you would be attacked, those would be your kinsmen. You were born in that country, raised in that country, with your fellow countrymen. You could say, you're, These are my kinsmen. And if we doubted the physical relationship, he adds that next element, clause there at the end of verse 3, according to the flesh. And again, it's like, I could say, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, You're my kinsmen. But more than that, he's saying, no, there's a physical relationship here. These are according to the flesh. This is more than the spiritual relationship. This is a physical relationship. And indeed, Paul was a Jew. We know that. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Look over at chapter 11. He says this in Romans chapter 11 in verse 1. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite. Notice, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he goes right into his very Jewish roots. I am a tri- I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm an Israelite. All of this, according to the flesh, Paul, that being his Roman name, his Hebrew name was Saul. 
Saul of Tarsus. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Here, Saul was, again, identifying his kinsmen who he, has, who he was physically related to. Identified next in verse 4 there of Romans 9, verse 4, he says, These are Israelites. Who are Israelites? Again, these are those who are identified as the nation of Israel, Israelites, the physical people of that nation, Israelites. The term Israelite is used nine times in the New Testament. Every time it's used, it's speaking of a physical Jew, one who is part of the physical nation. Jesus calls Nathanael in John chapter 1, verse 47. He calls Nathanael an Israelite. He says, Behold, an Israelite indeed whom there is no guile. Paul himself, as I pointed out here, uh, and also in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 22, calls himself an Israelite. When he says of the, of the false teachers that came in, in in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. For all, are they defendants of, of, or descendants of Abraham? So am I. These Israelites, again, refers to the physical nation. Next phrase in verse 4, who belongs the adoption as sons. The church weren't the first adopted as sons of God. The church weren't the first one to be the heirs of, of, of God. Israel was first. Israel was called out of Egypt to be the son. Israel was God's adopted people first. They had the adoptions before we were in Christ. They also had the glory, as verse 4 says of, of Romans chapter 9, verse 4, belongs the glory. What is the glory of their work? Turn over to chapter 2, you see it in Romans chapter 2. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, verse 1, Paul describes the glory of the nation of Israel. When he, this is how Israel understood themselves and their work. Chapter 2, starting in verse 17, says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, and a teacher of the immature, having the law and the, the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. What did all these Jews have? They had the glorious work of God in their midst. They had the law of God. They were teachers of righteousness. They were the defenders of righteousness. They were the ones who had the law. They were the ones who understood the will of God. They were the ones who sought to fulfill the word of God and the law of God. They were, as verse 19 says, the guide to the blind. But they had rejected. They had walked in unbelief. They had turned away from their God, as Paul goes on to go on to describe, the very teachers of the law violated the very things that they taught. And the question, the natural question then that would come out in the Jews' mind is, was it all worthless then? What was the benefit? That's chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? If they had all this glory and all this marvelous work, what was their advantage? Verse 2, great in every respect, first of all, 
they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given the word of God. God spoke in and through the people of Israel. God brought his message to the world through his people, chosen people of Israel. Turn back to chapter 9. This is the glory of the people. Not just the glory, they are also the ones who received the covenants. They're the ones who had received the promises, the covenants. The promise that God would, through Abraham, make Abraham a father of many nations. The promise through Moses that God would save those who followed his law. And the promise through David that on David's throne would sit one a king who would rule forever. These are the covenants, the promises that God had made to them. And it is through, verse 4, the giving of the law. The law wasn't given to the Gentiles. It was given through the physical people of Israel, through the nation of Israel, through Moses it was given. And the temple service. The temple wasn't given to all of us. The temple was given to God's people, Israel. And the very promises the promises of a kingdom, the promises of life, the promises of a land, the promises of a Messiah. All of this was given to the people of Israel. He said in verse 5, Whose are the fathers? Abraham was an Israelite. David was an Israelite. Moses, an Israelite. The prophets there in which this message came through, came through Israel. And in fact, that's what Paul has been demonstrating through the book of Romans is the connection to this people. The gospel we hear, the gospel we preach comes because God has first preached it to Abraham. Don't believe me? Read Romans chapter 4 because that's exactly what Paul argues. That the message of salvation by grace through faith is that message of righteousness preached to Abraham. And Abraham, by faith, believed, and he was saved as we believe and we are saved. And that message, which was promised and proclaimed and affirmed by David, is the very message we believe. So this people, then, that Paul is referring to here is clearly the physical people of God, the physical nation. And one more for you in verse 5. From whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Meaning, again, the Messiah has come, the phrase, according to the flesh, according to the physical people, he has come according to the nation of Israel. He is a Jew. The Messiah came through the Jewish people. According to the flesh, he says, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Ten different qualifying statements to demonstrate who the brethren are. The brethren are those physical Jews. And let me give you a bonus one, just an extra one, a grammatical point. Notice verse 4. Because somebody at this point might again say, Well, he's not talking about the physical people. He's talking about the believer who believes the gospel and then is the new Jew because he believed the gospel. That's the one he is talking about. No, actually, verse 4 shuts that down altogether because it says in verse 4, who are 
Israelites. The are there, the to be verb, is present tense. Saying right now, at this moment, are Israelites. Not the ones in the future who are going to believe who then became Israelites because they believe. No, the one who is right now at this very moment and ongoing are Israelites, are the ones who belong to the adoption as sons, are the ones who receive the glory, are the ones who have the covenants and on down the line. Speaking emphatically about the physical people of Israel, there is no doubt about it. Ten qualifying factors, grammatically is emphasizing that. He's saying emphatically here, Paul, I am grieved over my kinsman, the unbelieving apostate Jew who has rejected their Messiah. I am grieved for them, overwhelmed for them. So grieved now, he has to go defend his message. And we'll start that next week. But what I wanted to point on your mind is this. His audience, in his mind, is clear. And it ought to be clear to us. And what he's going to teach about that, then we will see in the weeks to come. But what we'll find this is that God's promises won't be thwarted by Israel's rebellion. They will be established. And God isn't going to change his plans. He's going to fulfill his promises and his covenant. And he's going to fulfill all that he has said. And when we begin to look through these particular details, what we're going to find is an absolute consistency in this message that God has throughout the word of God. You can go back to Zechariah chapter 12 through 14 and see that God still has a future plan for the restoration of physical Israel. You can read Daniel chapter 9 through 12 and you see the same thing, that God has a future plan for the restoration of Israel to bring an end to their transgression, to cause the people to turn back and to see their God to be restored to him to end all the rebellion, to end all and bring final judgment and to cause God's people to be restored to him, to see the Messiah whom they have rejected. Just read Daniels 9 through 12. Romans 9 through 11 illustrates that for us and Revelation chapter 4 through 20. All of these passages consistently teach the physical salvation and restoration of Israel. So my question is this then, one who still says, nah, it's physical, it's a spiritual, it's, it's a different group altogether. My question would be this, what more would God have to say? If his word doesn't plainly take your heart and cause your heart to come under it, what right gives us to stand over the word? Where can we do that? Where we can stand over the scripture and tell the scripture what it must mean. Doesn't the text mean something to us? Isn't there some kind of authority in God and his message that causes us to come under it? Is there something where we have to come under his text and let him direct us? Yes. It's his way, not our way, that we're seeking. It's his message, not our message. What message would he have for us? We'll come back in two weeks. We'll get back into Romans and we'll see that marvelous message that God has for us in this text. But I know it's this. It's going to cause us to have greater confidence in the working of God and his glory and in the gospel he preaches that we are to go preach. Let's go before him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this text and these truths and this message. And indeed, we love your word. We love the clarity of your message. But certainly it's not that this 
truth is easy. It's not that your teaching is always clear to us. It's not that while you, there's the perspicuity of Scripture, all you've said is plain and understandable. It's not so easy for us to grasp or reach. So as we come to your message to understand, help us to understand your truth, to come in under your message, to set aside our own self-will, our own unbelief, our own self-seeking, and to, as humble servants, come under the truth. For indeed, we know your word will not mislead us, will not lead us into error. It is infallible, which means it's reliable, it's inerrant, which means that it is without fault. We know, Father, that you will not direct us into the path of unrighteousness, but you will only direct us to righteousness. So as we desire to understand your truth and we wrestle with it, we desire to see the riches of your glory so that our response would be that of worship and praise and adoration and our response would be encouragement from the truth. And when we are tempted to come to a text and stand over it and demand the text, comfort our fears and, and encourage our passions and desires, may we be those humbled Bereans who diligently sought the Scriptures to know that they would understand again if we are teaching according to your message and not our own. And we are thankful, Father, for the discussions that we can have among your people, for the for the intellectual debate, for the encouragement. And may we all be filled with a humility as we come to your scriptures. For it's not my will be done or our will be done, but your will be done. So may it be, Father, as we wrestle through your truth, that your will be made obvious to all of us and that your truth be our delight and our satisfaction. For indeed, we quickly lay down our opinions, but we hold firmly to your opinions and your truth, for that's all that matters. Thank you for ministering to us from your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.